Hey, everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 13 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website ever, the Mandolin Cafe. Be sure to go to themandolincafe.com, or just mandolincafe.com, I should say, and uh, check it out as often as you can. I go there multiple times a day. Hope everybody's had a great week. This week is John Reichman. Super excited about that. That's for sure. Um, He's so good. His tone is incredible, and I highly recommend going to check out the video that Fretboard Journal did um, on John and his lore. We talk about it a little bit in the podcast, and I will put a link at mandolinsandbeer.com and right under the image for this week's episode, I will have a link to that video. I highly recommend checking it out. It's really, really well done, and it gives you some insight into a great player and his incredible instrument. Um, and uh, So check that out. Um, our sponsor this week, besides the Mandolin Cafe, is once again Peghead Nation, where John teaches. Pegheadnation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin with Sharon Gilchrist, who I'll be talking to in just a few weeks. Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, who we've spoken with already. Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton. Melodic Mandolin Tunes with this week's guest, John Reichman. Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, who was another incredible guest. Irish Mandolin with Marla Fibish. And Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now. You get the first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's all one word mandolin beer uh, with peghead nation streaming video courses in mandolin guitar banjo fiddle dobro ukulele and bass you'll learn bluegrass old time and other styles from some of the greatest and most talented players and instructors in roots music so be sure to go check that out um, also check out the spotify playlist every week it is updated with songs that are featured during this podcast there's plenty of them 12 or 13 this week i believe that we uh that we talked about so uh, go and I'll have the link also at mandolinsabeer.com. Also, you can support the podcast by buying a shirt or a sticker or a koozie or on Friday, hats, hats and patches, actually, both. I will have pictures on the website. I'll post them on Instagram, and there is a limited amount. Um, so uh, once they're up there, I'll let you all know, and they're they're great looking. They're Richardson 112, 112 snapback trucker style hats black and white they look great uh so i i'm excited for those to finally be here and uh yeah other than that that's about all i've got uh next week's guest is 2019 ibma mandolin player of the year alan bybee um and he was another great guest too so i'm looking forward to y'all hearing that but let's get into it now with john reichman thanks for listening everybody be sure by the way Subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends on the social media. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Mandolins and Beer. Have a great week. Cheers. And now I'd like to welcome to the Mandolins and Beer podcast, John Reichman. John, how are you today? Well, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today. I'm excited well, I'm excited to, to talk to you. 
yeah, I'm happy to to spend a little time. Oh, thank you so much. And you live? Do you live in Vancouver? Well, I I lived in I moved to Vancouver um, in 1992 mm-hmm. and lived there for um, I think 17 or 18 years, and then uh, my wife and I moved just a little bit east of there. Just I mean, not very far at all. It's part of the same municipality, but uh, it's called New Westminster. Oh, cool. So, are you from Canada originally, or are you from the United States? No, no, I I uh, grew up in Northern California. Oh, cool. Cool. That's right. That's you were uh, kind of part of the. There's a great quote or in your bio about um, Tony Rice questioning your move from the hotbed of California bluegrass to, oh, to yeah. Vancouver. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I. I mean, it was actually a great place to grow up as far as you know being a mandolin player. Sure. I mean, not that there were any mandolin players where I lived, mm-hmm. but it was. I had close proximity to San Francisco. It was only a couple hours away, so I saw, you know, a lot of good music um, traveling down there early on sure what got you uh, started on the mandolin um well i was interested in music you know the beatles yeah and then so i got a guitar and took some lessons when i was about nine and it, it didn't really stick i you know i wasn't quite disciplined and then uh, but ended up with the guitar and then my older brother kind of took that guitar over and learned some stuff from his friends and then came back around a few years later and he showed me some stuff and I just got interested in, in, the in the guitar and music in general. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I'd watch television as a kid and I, you know, every once in a while encounter, um, bluegrass bands like the, you know, Beverly Hillbillies or the <laughs> yeah. Dillards on Andy Griffith and, you could hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. Four of them made a train and he put it on the track. He ran to the Lord knows where. Oh, me, oh, my. You could and then there was the a PBS station. KQED that would have different folk shows, including uh, Pete Seeger's Rainbow Quest, which had different uh, bluegrass bands like the Greenbrier Boys, and I think the Stanley Brothers were on there, and the New Lost City Ramblers, so I'd see mandolins, and uh, so I was kind of aware of them, and and that was the context I thought of them, and it was in in bluegrass ensembles. Right, right. And uh, and then a a family friend lived in the neighborhood, um, was walking home from school and he gave me a ride and he had a mandolin in his in his front seat and um and then he later loaned it to me and um so i just sort of started messing around with it that's awesome did you take lessons from somebody in san francisco or did you were you self-taught no no i never i never really took any lessons I, i mean i'd get um some advice and pointers here and there when i would you know um the, on the rare occasion where I would encounter another mandolin player, but no, I just pretty much self my self taught myself. No kidding, and that's and that's like a, you know now with YouTube and the internet and Mandolin Cafe, you have access to so yeah. many different things. But w- what are some of the ways that you taught yourself back before we had the, uh, you well, know, the internet you know, access? When I, when I first the, actually the first mandolin I ever picked up was um, was belonged to um, some 
well, what, what happened was I went with some high school friends to the Mendocino coast and we went camping for a weekend and there were some hippies camped down, <laughs> down the beach from us. Yeah. And, uh, we went down and visited them and there was a mandolin just laying there and there was a guy playing guitar. He was playing, I can't remember what he was playing exactly, but there was a mandolin and I picked it up and just sort of strummed it. And I, I it was tuned to an open chord Oh, no and kidding. I kind of, yeah. And I, I knew about, you know, open tunings on the guitar. So, I, and I could the bottom uh, interval was in a fifth, so I could relate to that from the open E or open D tuning on the guitar, and um, just sort of thought, oh, well, that that's easy. You can just <laughs> <laughs> strum it and it sounds good. Yeah. So when I got when I got that mandolin from my neighbor, I tuned it to an open E chord. Oh no kidding! And, uh, and didn't really use a pick. I just kind of was, you know, just on my own, just playing around yeah and then later on i thought well this might make more sense because i knew how it was supposed to be tuned maybe i'll try it as an open g and did that for a while and then got a pick and then got uh the opportunity to buy a nicer mandolin and at that point i was a few years older and i thought well i should you know i have this nice mandolin i should probably you know do it the proper way and so started tuning it to uh to the you know the fifth tuning Mm -hmm. and um and started learning fiddle tunes. And, and I listened to a lot of guitar players at that time. I was still playing guitar, and I really liked Doc Watson and, uh, and then the John Hartford aerial playing. Down in the city, it's a pity what's there. All the kids in the gutter running really bare. How much money do I have to get? Get me set where the jet set gets. Like a record turned me on to Norman Blake, and I was able to get his first record, so I really liked Norman and, and Doc. Technique with the right hand um, was pretty similar, you know, with the flat picking, the up and down picking. Sure. And I remember um, playing guitar along with the Doc Watson record, playing along with Salt Creek, and all of a sudden, it just somehow I could play it. to me that I could do that but but I just I naturally had the the right hand um alternating picking and um yeah just just listened to a lot of a lot of players and slowed records down mm-hmm. um discovered Sam Bush's well the the first Newgrass Revival record I, I had no idea who those guys were but I had I found the album in a record store in Eugene, Oregon, and I had noticed that they had covered a tune by Norman Blake, who I knew uh-huh. of, and also Vassar Clement. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll check this out. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe how good the band was playing. I didn't really know anything about Sam, but the, but I started 
learning his solos by slowing down the the, the record player to 16. Wow, that's man. Sam Bush comes up on every one of these podcasts, by the way. As is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I'm well, not he's sure. you know he's my biggest inspiration overall. I would say. Yeah, mine too. Uh, his is just unbelievable feel, and yeah, just everything about yeah the, him. the energy. You know, yeah, it's was, it was great. And and at at the time, I just thought he was so creative and inventive in his in his single note lines. I just really liked it. Sure. And could relate to it because it was, you know, he's coming from a fiddle, fiddle tune background too. Right, right. That's great. Was there a, uh, you mentioned the the Salt Creek that was on guitar. Was there one on mandolin that you remember uh, sitting down and just knocking out? Um, well, on mandolin, let's see. I can't remember a specific tune, mm-hmm. but there was, you know, it was, you know, the Sam Bush solos, like on the first record, and then some Byron Berline stuff with Country Gazette. I, I learned those. Um, but the fiddle tunes on the guitar just kind of went with the fiddle tunes on the mandolin. I just learned the right fingering on the mandolin. Yeah. And and just learned, you know, kept learning them. And, uh, and my one of my good friends was also into the uh, mandolin and guitar, so we just played together and worked out fiddle tunes and sometimes in harmony and just, you know, did that quite a bit. Yeah, that's awesome. So when did you start playing live gigs? Did you start like a band up early on or were you just going to jams? No, I just played with friends mostly and every once in a while, you know, people would, this was back in, in my hometown of Ukiah, California, and they'd say, oh, those guys play music, let's get them to play. So it was informal and I uh, played a lot with my brother, my older brother, Steve, who mm-hmm. was a really good singer and a rhythm guitar player. So we'd play in different configurations with friends, and and um, and then I moved. I started when I got. I was going to a few different community colleges around Northern California, and then ended up living in Oregon. And I was really into it at that time. I was really, you know, just spending all my time playing and mm-hmm. and uh, playing gigs with him a little bit, and uh, went to. Um, Bluegrass Festival in Roseburg, Oregon, and there are some bands from the Bay Area, uh, the Vern Williams Band, great traditional group, and uh, the Good Old Persons and the right. Duncan Band. And I was kind of aware of those guys, but the, you know, I got to hear them and jam with some. And and um, I guess that was the connection with the Bay Area that I first made. And a guy from Eugene named David Birch had joined the Good Old Persons. And they needed a mandolin player, and he knew me from Eugene and recommended me. So I went down and auditioned and got the gig. Yeah, yeah, it was it was yeah because I I really liked that band a lot. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I saw them in their earliest incarnation as a, as an all uh, female group, and you know thought they were great. And then they slowly started integrating more uh, you know as men and women in the band, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a version of the band I saw in uh, Roseburg. And I thought, man, this is, I, Harry Eglegian was playing mandolin and guitar, switching back and forth. I said, I know that guy's gig. And then I ended up <laughs> sort of indirectly getting it about six months later. No kidding. That's great. 
Yeah, that's great. And yeah, it so was great. it was re- it was really exciting. It was a great place to land because they're you know they're really good musicians and they had original material mm-hmm. and and uh, encouraged that in the group and. Also, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area where the David Grisman quintet was, and, you know, that that was right when they were really hitting it. And um, there was a really good local bluegrass scene with Paul Saloon, which is, a, you know, a long, long-lived long um, bluegrass bar there in San Francisco. So that was one of our regular gigs. And, um, yeah, it was just a great scene. That's awesome. And is that how you ended up meeting Tony Rice? Yeah. Yeah, Tony. I met Tony, I guess he would every once in a while he'd um, stop by one of our regular gigs and, and met him and didn't really, you know, think too much of it. I mean, except it was exciting meeting Tony Rice. And, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and then uh, about 1980, I had heard that, you know, someone said, uh, Tony Rice is trying to get a hold of you. Wow. And uh, which I said, Oh, really? <laughs> and, uh, and it, that was right when, um, David Grisman and he had sort of parted ways and Mark O'Connor joined the quintet and Tony decided he was just going to put his own band together. So, uh, so I went over to his house and we talked a little bit and he said what he was, what he was hoping to, you know, the direction of the band and, you know, what he was, what kind of gigs he was hoping to do. And he gave me some LPs of the instrumental music, you know, what, what he calls space grass, <laughs> you know, which is his, his version of dog music, I guess, or right, right. whatever you want to call that new acoustic <laughs> Uh, you know, which was original instrumentals um, with a lot of improvisation. And he gave me the LPs and he had some charts, which, you know, I, I don't really read music um, very, very fast, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, I had the chords. And and uh, so I went home and, and learned a few of those tunes and went back and played. And he was just like super impressed, which was great. Yeah. He, was, he said, well, he and pretty much said, you know, after you know, 20 minutes. He said, well, I'm not looking for another mandolin player. Oh, wow. Which was, you know, <laughs> was really, really awesome, you know, to have that happen. And um, so that was 1980. And uh, he always wanted to have Todd Phillips playing bass, but Todd had uh, left the Bay Area for a period of time and moved to Washington State. So a lot of that first year was just kind of cooling my heels, going over to playing with Tony, learning tunes. Mm-hmm. And he was also looking to hire a fiddle player, but he couldn't find anybody till Fred Carpenter came along. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, someone, uh, I think it was Daryl Anger and Mike Marshall recommended, they had met Fred and they had, they had suggested him. So so by the end of 80, we uh, uh, Todd came back to California. Fred came out from Maine, I think is where he was living. And we just started rehearsing. And then we had uh, three gigs booked at the end of the year. So I think first part of December and we played those gigs and then played with them for the next three years after that. And a lot just like all over the place, all over the country and not actually not that much. Oh, no kidding. Um, well, a little bit. We did one sort of national tour where we, uh, I think we had from Salt Lake to Houston, to Chapel Hill, to New York, to Vermont, and, and Boston as well. So it was a good, it was really, you know, I hadn't, hadn't been to any of those places and I'd never, I don't think I'd been to New York at that point. And we played the bottom line in New York city. And then this great theater on the Harvard campus, uh, Sanders theater. And I played that theater. And I thought, Oh man, I can't go back to the pizza parlors. after this. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, I was still playing, um, you know, gigs with the good old persons. And that was, you know, kind of one of our bread and, butter gig yeah 
you know, in addition to other, you know, tours. But anyway, um, we played a lot in uh, Northern California. We'd play the Great American Music Hall, where I used to see Tony with the David Grissom and Quintet and other folks. And um, up up the coast into Washington, down to L.A. But but um, it wasn't there wasn't a, a ton of playing. Oh, no kidding. Well, it was a little frustrating because you know Tony still sang at that time, and you know a lot of his audience wanted to hear him sing, but he was really adamant about just doing this this um, you know new acoustic music, and uh, he would still sing on records, you know, because he was making the bluegrass album bands at that time, and right. I think Church Street Blues. And um, so, you know, we, we inevitably, you know, some of it holler out for him to sing. So eventually he, he just um, kind of dissolved the band, moved back east and started a group with uh, Jimmy Goodrow and Wyatt and Mark Schatz. And he was singing from then on. Oh, no kidding. But he wasn't. Yeah. And so there's a pretty like on that first album, Backwaters, that's the first. Is that the first album you did with him? Uh, no, no. The first one was the LP was called Still Inside. Oh yeah, Still Inside. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking of Backwaters because yeah. of the uh, like my favorite things and on Green Dolphin Street, which which led me to at, wanted to ask you a little bit about like were you already playing a lot of jazz then too at that point out, outside of bluegrass? Uh, I liked well. I I, I really love Django Reinhardt, and then consequently as a mandolin player discovered. Jethro Burns and was a big fan of his and mm-hmm. actually got to meet him and jam with him one oh, time. Oh, did you really? Super excited. Yeah. Um, he was, yeah, he's very generous. It was, he was touring with Steve Goodman. And this was when I was living in Eugene, Oregon, about 1977. And he came to town with Steve and a friend of my brother's had been uh, connected somehow. I may be a road manager for Steve Goodman at one time. So he had a party after the show and there was a jam session, and, and Jethro played, and you know, he was playing mandolin, and and, um, and Steve Goodman was playing too, and my brother. And it, it was just great, because <laughs> Jethro would play something, and I had a little cassette recorder with a you know microphone uh-huh. on a wire, and I'd say, oh, could you do that again? And he, <laughs> he humored me, and he showed me this really interesting three-fingered chord that I still use. Oh, really? It's pretty yeah, well, it's a you know a G six voicing where you play um, an E on the D string, a D on the A string, and a, a G on the E string. Oh, cool! And it works as a G six or a E minor seventh or C nine or an A sus uh, seven. So he and he showed it to me in this funny little little uh, progression, and that stuck with me. But anyway, yeah, um, I so I really I like the swing music, and then. Little, I got a little bit interested in bebop, but with Tony, I mean, he was so into jazz and more progressive jazz, and mm-hmm. um, so I got exposed to some music that I really liked and tried to play that too. And and uh, the Green Dolphin Street, I mean, that was I was kind of mapped out that solo for the most part. Okay, sure. Uh, keeping in mind what you know, I'd read about. West Montgomery, where he would start his solos with single notes and then move to octaves and then move to chords. So that's what I was trying to kind of use that roadmap. chart those out as far as like the chords and determining 
um, you know, for somebody who might be approaching jazz, because a lot of people that have been interviewing on some of these podcasts have are like jazz and bluegrass seem to have this, you know, like this crossover section where a lot of the bluegrass players are really interested in jazz. And, you know, like, yeah. you know, like some of the Django songs, you know, they have a, a similar, you know, like a one, four, five, you know, progression every now and again. But like, you know, uh, Green Dolphin Street and my favorite things, especially, I mean, if you were to sit down and just throw that chart in front of somebody who's not familiar with, <laughs> with like, yeah, jazz, how you I, might I fall a over. Time, a, a bit of time, you know, studying it. And yeah. uh, I, I took a, you know, jazz improv class at one of the colleges I went to just, you know, just as a, as a you know, informally. And uh, but I was roommates for a while with David Balakrishnan, who uh, plays with the Turtle Island String Quartet, mm-hmm. and he was a huge fan of the you know the new acoustic scene, and he lived in the Bay Area at that time, and he was very knowledgeable about jazz theory, and he taught me uh, a lot about how to approach uh, some of that stuff and different patterns you can play, and yeah. and uh, you know these different progressions will pop up, but the the thing that you know was interesting about a tune like green dolphin street is where you don't stay in one key for the whole time right right yeah so how do you you're you're starting in c major but then it kind of goes to c minor for a little bit so it's negotiating through that and sounding um like you're really playing to the changes can be a bit of a challenge but i you know i always liked that and 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 made a big effort to not just (laughs) cram certain licks in that weren't completely correct you know i really wanted to play to the changes and part of that was from just studying the arpeggios and and i i still like that music quite a bit i don't spend as much time with it but i mm-hmm. you know i i have every intention of of revisiting it and i keep thinking i should put together a local band that you know plays that kind of stuff yeah but you know most of my performing has been done more in the bluegrass uh world in recent years, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of the things, actually, I want to ask you about while we're talking about jazz and different things, because one of the blurbs uh, for your first album was um, it, uh, basically you wanted to record the types of music that you like playing the best, bluegrass, Latin, and string jazz. And so, you know, I think a struggle that I find myself falling into, and I'm guessing maybe a lot of other players might as well, is focusing you know sometimes i get overwhelmed by i want to work on green dolphin street and then i want to work on big mon and then i'm just <laughs> and then i just turn netflix on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so how do you how did you you know kind of maneuver um you know did you go through phases of liking those things or did you have a practice routine or i know i think i just liked it all at that time you know when i was when i was that was like late 80s early 90s and i i was the i was really pretty into uh, various Latin styles and mainly this Puerto Rican style art called Hebrew. Not that I really played it accurately, but it was mm-hmm. uh, an inspiration to me. And, and I'd, you know, the jazz was still a carryover from my days with Tony Rice. And then I like bluegrass too. So I, I don't know. I, I would just, um, I never had any issue with, you know, uh, going from one to the other. I guess. Yeah. Did you have like a pretty set practice pattern that you, that you kind of had in those days? I, well, when I joined Tony, I, I practiced a lot and I did have a <laughs> um, practice pattern where mm-hmm. I, I would have spent at least two hours of focused practice, you know, just really practicing scales and exercises and his tunes and, you know, challenging stuff. And then, but I was always playing gigs and playing for my own amusement. So I was, you know, have the mandolin in my hand a lot more than just those two hours. 
And another thing you must practice, so I have this giant sheet of notes. Your your discography and credits are so huge. <laughs> it was just like, you know, like there's so much stuff. And but the, the notes that I keep finding written down are taste and tone. Taste and tone is all over the sheet as I'm just going through and listening to stuff or thinking about your playing. Um, you know, was there a did you did you set out and have a way that you got that? Because your tone's incredible. Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. Um, I'm not really sure. It just, I think it, I just, um, this is my um, best take on it, is I just uh, developed the technique I have, which is not the most common technique with the right and left hand, but I just developed that in order to achieve the sound that sounded right to me or sounded, you know, the sound I heard in my head. Mm -hmm. And I never really conceived of it. I just wanted to make it sound good. And that, and the way I ended up sounding, uh, people noticed, and I remember this, um, this this guy from North Carolina. That he said, "I think you get about as good a tone as anybody." And this was early on, even before I started gigging professionally. Sure. And I was kind of confused by it, like because I thought, "Well, why? What? Uh, what other way would they sound?" I mean, <laughs> what? You know? um, so I, it was just something I naturally heard in in my head. Uh, I guess you know. I mean, they're mandolins, so I was always striving to make them sound as full and deep and, you know, with sort of a sustaining tone. And then, and then you know, a while back, I, I realized maybe this comes from listening to electric guitar, which was part of the, the scene where I grew up. Um, are you familiar with a guitar player named Robin Ford? Oh, yeah. Killer blues player. He, well, he's, he's from the same town I grew up in. Oh, and no he, kidding. He uh, was in a... No, no, he was he uh, tuned my first guitar. Did he? <laughs> wow! He's in a band with my next door neighbor. Oh, cool! And uh, I went over to listen to them rehearse, and I remember just wandering over there, and they were playing um, "Hideaway," you know, the Freddie King oh, yeah. that, that that Eric Clapton uh, recorded with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. Yes. And uh, and I was just amazed because I had heard that record um, on my brother's uh, stereo. And I thought, man, that sounds just as good. And that was really a turning point for me. So, and all these young high school guys were really into Chicago blues. And so I ended up being into that. And also, you know, my brother would come home with records from the Bay Area and, you know, all kinds of different, you know, San Francisco rock bands, Steve Miller band, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I listened to a lot of electric guitar. So just that sustaining quality mm -hmm. and that tone was something, I guess, maybe that informed my approach to I was, he was a, a role model, not that I tried to play like him or anything, but mm -hmm. he was, you know, playing at a super high level. He was like our local hero because, you know, we knew he was great. And then he got a job with um, with uh, Charlie Musselwhite, the blues harp player. Yep, yep. And then Jimmy Witherspoon after that. And then just one thing led to another where he ended up playing, you know, touring with Joni Mitchell and when she was doing more of a jazz thing and and uh, George Harrison. Yeah, he's great. And he, I really what I really loved about him and what what I love about you, I guess, too, is um, he plays blues not just he has got a really jazzy form of blues that he plays his note choices and and technique yeah. and tone are all stellar which which lines yes. right up with you <laughs>
Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, another, um, the, uh, uh, when we're talking of tone and technique, there's a couple notes here. That, um, one thing I really notice, and I think the recording of the song Big Bug is a great example of, is the, your ability to also play fast and maintain <laughs> that tone. I used to be able to play fast. <laughs> I mean, I still I still play, you know, fast enough. But it's, sure. I, I do notice, um, you know, that it's I can't quite play at the same speeds I I did, mm -hmm. like say when I recorded Big Bug. But you know, I probably if I can't get the tone, I probably would play just keep playing slower, <laughs> you know, because that's more important than you know trying to go for it at these ridiculously fast tempos. Is that something that you, so like when writing, like composing Big Bug, is that something that started yep. slower or is it something that you just were? Well, that tune, um, I started that by trying to come up with more of a medium tempo Monroe blues mm -hmm. uh, with double stops. And then I, it just, I realized I could kind of um, add some single note playing to it and it just slowly became uh, this fast tune. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh and we we recorded that. Um it was the four of us, it was Todd Phillips on bass and Jib Dunley on guitar and Tony Trishka on banjo. And then we left a spot for fiddle, which uh Byron Berline ended up filling that in. And and um we played it several times at at the about the tempo that it's on the record. Mm -hmm. And then someone suggested, well, let's do it faster. <laughs> we did this one take that was ridiculously fast. And then we went back and it seemed, you know, seemed like, oh, got that out of our system and I could play it a little easier then too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted that to be a up-tempo tune eventually. And, and so I'm, that was when I played quite a bit. It's the one thing that always stood out to me was, man, it sounds so good and it's so fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that that's the thing I just... I just try to, um, you know, keep get that tone, and uh, if 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 I can't play it at that tempo, I'll just I won't play it at that tempo. I'll just slow it down a little bit because you can still you know move it back a bit, and it still has the effect of being a fast tune, which is smart. You know, I think again, you're <laughs> you know, that's the way to do it instead of you know falling all over yourself on it. Um, and then another tune, uh, your uh, the Alexandra Waltz, your double stops. Oh yes. I mean, that song yes. so beautiful. And your double stops are another thing about your playing that's so good. And is there a way that you approach double stops, you know, to maybe help somebody try to, uh, you know, get such an, a good, even and, and clean tone? Um, well, I just, I mix, mix them up. Like one of the uh, patterns I use is the harmonized scale. And that's a lot of what I'm using on that Alexander Waltz, where it's like a, 
say a G harmonized scale where you're playing the fifth fret on the on the D string and the second fret, and you just go up the scale. So if the lower pitch is is the melody and the higher pitch is the harmony, mm-hmm. so I just play major major scales that way mm-hmm. and practice them. So I could, as as if I was playing a single note scale, so I could move fluidly from you know one melody note to another. Um, that's that's a good way to go, and then you move it to other keys. Um, but I, I just like that sound a lot, you know, even, you know, in traditional bluegrass or, and it works really well in you know, other styles of music as well. Uh, that song is just beautiful. And then that leads me to maybe one of my all time favorite songs of yours, Prairie Jewel. song I, I wish I'd keep track on how many times I have listened to that song it is so beautiful and um, I can't believe it's not like just a wedding song that's used yeah. all I played it multiple weddings when we when to get hired for like for um, you know pre-ceremony music and that's one of the ones that I always pull out it's gorgeous so I'd like to maybe talk a bit maybe about like the writing of that song or how you came up with that sure yeah well it's it's um yeah I'm, I'm happy with that tune um, it just kind of came together pretty quickly. I mean, the, the first, you know, three, three double stops I played, that was the, you know, the genesis of the tune it sounded really good to me. And uh, I think what happened was we were staying, the Jaybirds were staying uh, at a friend's house in, uh, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. actually in a cabin way out in the woods. It was very quiet. And we played some music and, and uh, the guy we were staying with had just played, the traditional Irish ballad Arthur McBride, and so I don't know some somehow that little bit of uh, of uh, Irish influence was in there, and that's that's how that what the tune sounds a bit like to me. You know, has this kind of Celtic flavor. So I played the, those first three double stops, and then thought, oh, this will work into something, and then just over the next day, just put it together, recorded it on my phone, oh, and, nice, and then. Sh- shaped it over another month or so. Yeah. And uh and I think that that recording uh turned out really nice. Those guys, Eli West and Trent Freeman and Patrick Metzger are very um sensitive musicians mm-hmm. and they really fell into that particular tune really nicely. Did you guys track that live? Yeah, it's it's all live but it's edited. So there might be um a better guitar solo in one take than the other. So so that was yeah we were all in the same room you know pretty much facing each other not without much uh, I don't think there was any baffling I think everything was open and uh, and we just uh, recorded it like seven or eight times and then I went back and listened to them all and and uh, assembled this this cut nice do you have a like a, a particular setup you use when you record as far as mics go well I like the you know the KM eighty fours or one eighty fours or my favorite is the KM54, which is a tube version of those mics. Oh, cool. Yeah, because, yeah. again, your tone. I mean, it, it, anywhere you watch, I, I actually recommend people who are listening to this shit, I'll put a link when, when I put this podcast up to it as well. Um, there's The Fretboard Journal did a really cool video of you with your lore, and it really shows you have that really unique 
picking technique with your like a hyperextended <laughs> thumb. And yeah, that, yeah, I, I didn't really think about it too much at the time, but then realized, you know, a lot of people will angle their pick, but it's more commonly a forward angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so, but it it has the same effect. Yeah, it sounds and it sounds great, obviously. So yeah, and, and so um, after Tony Rice is when what? Because I just think it's so funny that thing and when the the blurb in your bio about moving to Vancouver, um, you know what what led to that move? Uh, well, I met a wonderful woman who lived in Canada when I was on tour with the Good Old Persons, and and uh, we just met. She was, I think, the president of the Bluegrass Association. We had a gig for, and and then I, you know, um, we we just, you know, I thought, oh, she's she's nice. She was in Vancouver, <laughs> <laughs> and then we got reacquainted at the IBMA a little later, and then you know, exchanged phone numbers and started talking on the phone, and yeah. you know, hit it off. Um, and then I visited her and then we just ended up having expensive phone bills for a while and, <laughs> and, uh, she had two little girls. And so that, you know, um, you know, I had to factor that into the whole thing, but then we, you know, we realized we wanted to live in the same place. And I, I thought, you know, I would just move cause it was just me uprooting my life rather than three people, you know, just cause you don't know how things are going to work out. Oh, sure. But it's worked out, and we're still together. That's and great, the, man. The little girls are have their own little girls now. Wow, congrats! That's so great. Yeah. So, did you at um the the first solo album was that kind of was was the move was that already in the works? Yeah, yeah. I had uh, that. I started that right after I think I had met Gwendolyn, and um, and then it took a while. That 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 recording got stalled for a while because I was, I made it for kaleidoscope records. Oh, okay. And, um, through some unfortunate, um, circumstances, they ended up, the owners ended up selling the business. Um, and the catalog they had was kind of in limbo for a while. And, and it actually hadn't, mine hadn't been released. It was all done Mm -hmm. and ready to go, but, uh, it took a while for, to get another label to purchase that master and rounder and ended up getting it, which was, which was cool. Um, and so let's see, that came out in 93 and I had, I had right around when I had moved North and, um, yeah. And then I moved, well, I was going to say one thing about moving to Vancouver was, which was, uh, I didn't really think about it at the time was when I lived in San Francisco, there was David Grisman and Mike Marshall and all these other great mandolin players, which was really good to have that exposure to these players. But the competition in the mandolin world was pretty high. <laughs> so when I moved to Vancouver, I had toured there enough that people knew my name, but there were not a lot of players. So I ended up getting some session work and different gigs and whatnot. So that was that was a, a nice nice um, development that happened that I didn't realize was going to so beneficial yeah that's great and then the, that's is that kind of how the jaybirds kind of came into the picture as well yeah later mm-hmm. uh like I, I the next solo cd i made was uh called up in the woods yeah and that was straight on bluegrass thing but it was my original tunes and um that record came out and i wanted to play a, a few gigs so i put together it was essentially the same uh four other people um greg spatz was the fiddle player who i knew from california and he was living in Spokane, and and then Nick Hornbuckle on banjo I had met at a music camp for about '96 or '97, 
and uh, we hit it off musically. And then Trisha Canyon on bass, um, she was in a very popular BC-based uh, bluegrass band called Tumbleweed. So I, they were in the original band, and then um, another guy played guitar just for the first couple of gigs. And then a few months later, I thought I got the same people together, the different guitar player, and we started out that way. And then Jim Nunley, who um, was involved with Up in the Woods recording it and also playing in about half of it, um, he subbed, he ended up joining the band. So that he and he was in the band for I don't know 16, 17 years, and then just recently, um, well, maybe two, three years ago now. It's not that recent anymore. He left, and Patrick Sauber came on board. So the other three musicians have been the same people. So we've very had very little personnel change. Oh, that's always nice. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, great. and then you know, I, but originally it was to sort of promote the up in the woods recording but you know trish is a great singer and um and jim was was good too and and patrick's an awesome singer so i always wanted to have you know singing part of it so it sort of developed its own identities just more of a conventional bluegrass band as far as the mix of singing and and uh, instrumentals differentiate because you um you're pretty prolific as far as like the originals and how do you differentiate what's going to be like a, a solo album what's going to be a jaybirds is it just kind of when you write it you automatically know for the tunes i write mm -hmm. uh i don't yeah it just seems like a judgment call at the time sure like the most recent um jaybirds record uh, it's called On That Other Green Shore, and it has a couple of my instrumentals. Yeah. And um, I, I guess for every Jaybird's release, I do want to have a couple instrumentals. So the one I had called Red Diamond, kind of a bluesy, chunky tune, mm -hmm. um, I had that, and I thought, oh, this will be good for the band. And then I have the last one, Daylighting the Creek. Um, I wrote that intentionally for the recording, although I may record it on a solo record too. So anyway. Now you've also been nominated. You've won a Grammy. Well, yeah. I, I mean, just, I, I, it's, I was on one cut on uh, the true life blues uh, tribute to Bill Monroe that Todd Phillips put together. Mm -hmm. So because I was on that one cut, I got a Grammy uh, certificate. That's great. Did you get to go to the, uh, yeah. did you get to go to the ceremony as well? No, no, I never did. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just, you know, I contribute a very small part to a, to a really nice record. Sure. And, you know, I, my playing was fine, but but it's kind of, you know, I'm happy to say I'm a Grammy winner. But <laughs> Yeah, it, man. It feels, it's not really bogus, but, you know, it, it's different than if my solo record got a Grammy. Right, right. Different. Hey, you never know. 
Yeah, it, you know, yeah. you never know. And then the Junos, you've been nominated for a couple as well, too, correct? Yeah, yeah. The Jaybirds were nominated for two Junos, which is like the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys, yeah. which was really great. And we went to the awards, and Shania Twain was the host, so that was that was, was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So how do you go about composing? Is there do you have a particular way? Do you sit down and write, or is it just kind of come to you? Um, sometimes they just come. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like with Prairie Jewel, I was playing the mandolin and just hit on these few little things. And um, and that happens a fair bit. And I'll just record the little little fragments on a, on my phone and then develop them. Like uh, Side by Each, it's kind of an old-time tune I wrote that's on uh, Walk Along John. Mm-hmm. And I just the first you know three chord changes had a melody, and uh, I just recorded it. And then months later... I went and revisited it, and there was enough there for me to complete the tune, and and then recorded it. So, but um, the ones I've written most recently, or that have come to me most recently, um, came in the way a lot from Up in the Woods did, where I just hear a tune in my head when I was walking, or you know, just it it wasn't I didn't have the mandolin in my hands. I guess is what I'm saying. Sure, sure. So the this one that um, I actually just recently recorded with uh, Casey Campbell and will probably record this on my own solo record is a tune called Susan McGee, which uh, came to me when I was on tour in Ireland with Greg Blake, who's a great progress singer and guitar player. And uh, the tune, and I know a lot of tunes came to me that way on that trip, but this was seemed to be the most consistently strong melody. And, um, uh, I just hear it day after day in my head, and yeah. and then finally just picked up the mandolin. I could play it <laughs> pretty. It was pretty accessible on the fingerboard, and uh, played it for a lot of different people. People who know Celtic music, and they said, "No, I don't. That doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard." <laughs> and, uh, so, so I, I'm happy about that. And that's that's probably the most natural way for these tunes to come out. Is that on that Casey Campbell? Is that that duets album that he put out? It, it's on the next. On, it'll be in volume two. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. I can't I'm wait to hear sure. that. Awesome. And then, so let's now, let's talk a little bit about your gear. I mean, I think most people okay. who are familiar with you are probably familiar yes. that you have one of the best sounding lures in, yeah. to, in, out there. So, well, it's, um, it's pretty awesome mandolin. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, that's the best one generation. That's the best one. <laughs> and I don't know if that's really true or not. I mean, it's subjective, you know, what's best or 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 not sure but um but I, I i like it quite a bit and um it's it's got a kind of a depth uh to its tone so that that adds to it which uh, i really like that but also it's nice clear highs and uh it's it doesn't seem like it's the loudest um lore i've played mm-hmm. but it's you know it's loud enough and it's a pretty smooth tone and and i, I don't know if the tone of it um there's a couple things um, it, I had a radius board put on it early on because mm-hmm. the original one, uh, frets were not true all the way up the neck. Gotcha. So, um, and then consequently the, the new board is a little thicker, so it's got a bit more mass to the neck. And then, uh, the, when I got it, uh, just shortly after maybe the next year or so, uh, it was, um, the top was dipping in under one of the feet of the bridge and, uh, Todd Phillips, suggested that if the bridge made full contact rather than having two separate feet Mm -hmm. 
would disperse the the pressure and uh, address that issue. And and so he um, he filled it in with ebony, and it did take take um, you know take care of that problem. So maybe the full contact bridge has to do with it, or the bridge uh, the the thicker fingerboard. Um, now this is a, a subtle thing that I hear. I think I hear at least is the original lores had had pearl nuts, and that to me um, I, I'm not a fan of that sound. I hear it as being a little brighter, mm-hmm. a little little more brittle sounding. Sure. So I always like the bone nuts. So that that contributes to it, and also just the fact that I've played it. I think you know there's something you know a theory that you know a musician will help play a sound into an instrument. Oh, absolutely. And I you know not that I want to take credit for the mandolin you know, sounding like that. But I I think probably if a different player would have gotten that mandolin and played it for the past, you know, 30 years or, you know, as long as I've had it, 35 years, um, good chances it would sound different than it does. It, well, and another mandolin player did almost get that, correct? <laughs> well. <laughs> another pretty yeah, famous another mandolin, mandolin player. Guy, David Grisman, <laughs> yeah. he was interested in it at the time. He, the mandolin I mean, a lot of folks know this story, but in 81, I heard that this uh, Lloyd Lore is for sale at, at Leo's Music in Oakland. And uh, so I went over and checked it out. And they said, oh, yeah, this we bought this from the family that had it um, in the closet for a long time. And we bought it from them. And they had to hold on to it for a month to make sure it wasn't stolen. <laughs> sure. And there was a, a, a minor repair uh, they, had, they were having taken care of. But they, they said... And I said, "Well, how much is it?" And, he, and the guy said, "Well, we're going to start the bidding at eight thousand, which was super discouraging because it's like, not only can I not get eight thousand dollars, I can't get into a bidding war. So, but anyway, I did my best to uh, raise eight thousand dollars, which I was able to sell my instruments at the time, and then I got a loan through a through a my sister's friend had had sent some funds and." they were generous enough to let me make payments. So got the money together. And, and then in the meantime, David Grisman uh, had also heard about it. He came by and um, he had, he had a lore in the sixties that somehow I don't, I'm not quite sure what the story of this is, but it, he mentioned to someone, you know, see what you could get for it, but he didn't, didn't really want to sell it, but the guy sold it for him. So he, so it went away from him and he ended up getting the fern or whatever. But right, anyway, right. he had just reacquired that, that lore somehow years later and it needed some work. So he just picked it up from Griffin string instruments in the, the South Bay and it was in the car and he stopped by um, Leo's to check out this, this one that I was interested in. And it turns out it was one serial number away from, from the, from mine. Wow, that's so wild. Mine's seven five three two seven, and his was seven five three two eight. Wow. And they're both at the tail end of the first batch of February eighteenth lores. So to get super geeky with this, there's yeah. there's there's you know all the lores have uh, dates, signature mm-hmm. dates, and there are two distinct serial number batches uh, signed on February eighteenth. The earlier batch and the later batch, and the later batch tend to have uh, uh, Verzi tone producers, and the earlier batch don't, except oh, okay. for the last two, which David's was and the one the very last one, and Chris Lee has both of his or from that batch, and 
Lloyd Lore's own Lloyd Lore's from that batch and, you know, several other ones. And, and they tend to be that earlier batch are pretty exceptional mandolins for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And some pretty so, exceptional um, players yeah, you, you, uh, have them too. Yeah. Speaking of that though, like you and, and Grisman and Thiele, you guys could probably walk in though. You could pick up any inexpensive mandolin at a music store. I'm pretty sure. And, and probably coax some pretty great tone out of it. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I yeah, you have to have a good instrument to, though to start with. You know, I was just, I was, you know, people talk about the tone of the mandolin or the tone of me, and I, it's just a, a nice partnership. And what kind of uh, strings and picks do you use? Um, well, I've been using uh, Red Bear, uh, the, the casing picks for for the past ten years or so, oh, something cool. like that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'll use a blue chip, um, and I I really love the way the blue chip. Um, glides off the string so smoothly right but if i get down to a being it i just prefer the the tone of the red bears a little more mm -hmm. sure sure <laughs> what uh, what shape do you use it's a uh, three rounded corners kind of like the golden gate shape oh okay cool and about 1.2 millimeters okay nice so not too heavy um yeah yeah it seems like if i go any heavier um Everything works except the fastest stuff, back to the speed thing. So, yeah. so if I go heavier than 1.2, I can't quite play at the speeds I can. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, let's see. Yeah, that's the pick. Um, I've been experimenting with different ones actually lately. Um, but generally, that's that's what I've used is the casing. Which And I used tortoiseshell for a long time. But then I come to find out the casing sounds just pretty similar. So I'm happy to use those. Is it like a signature pick for for Red Bear for you? Is that something that people can? Yeah, purchase? yeah. There's a it's it's what he calls a style E. Oh, okay, yeah. But I think you can also order like the John Reichen pick. It's essentially the same thing. Cool, cool, cool. And then strings. Uh, Diodario. I've used Diodario, uh, um, phosphor bronze strings for a long time, and and gone back and forth with gauges. Like I used the heavier J75s for a long time. Mm -hmm. And those worked really well. And then I ran out and I had some 74s and I put those on. I thought, well, this sounds just as good and is a little bit easier to play. So I, I have been using those. And then, but I swap out the A strings, which comes with a 15. I put a 16 on. Oh, okay, cool. But I guess there's a, there's a set now that is 40, 26, 16, 11 and a half. And I might just start getting, ordering those from them. But for you know the sound the jet the main sound I want to go for it's uh, this seems to be the good the 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 Adario strings are great and that pick works really well and you know I, I just try and stick with that for the most part and um, I also have a Haydn Michael Haydn mandolin that's really great um, I don't end up playing that in uh, bluegrass bands so much mm -hmm. just because I have this lore which is hard not to play <laughs> yeah sure. I could, if I only had the Haydn, I would, I'm sure I would adjust really quickly because yeah. it's a great instrument. Right, right. And I have a Lawrence Smart Mandola I've had since uh, for about over 20 years, which is really, he's, he, it's very great mandolin or mandola. Uh, do you get to use that often or is that more? Uh, I did for recording. I, 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 every once in a while I'll, I'll use it for gigs, but I don't really. If I have to fly, I'd have to check it. I just assume oh, not yeah. do that. Ugh, and, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
That's and the I, worst. You know, I'm happy just to play, to carry one instrument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you got all these great tunes, and people can go to Peghead Nation, by the way. Um, yeah. And you have uh, uh, instructional course on there. And before they were a sponsor of this website, I was, I had a, at least for a year before they sponsored this podcast, I went there. And yours and Joe Walsh's, I bounced back and forth between. They are both so good. So I highly recommend oh, it. Well, I'm glad you enjoy him. Joe's a great, good guy and, and yeah. great player, too. I, he was at the music camp I, I mentioned in the Great Lakes, so we got to play a lot of tunes together. But Peghead, yeah, I think it's a it's a really, it's a good thing. I, I'm, you know, I go down there and film them, and it's, you know, as a as a teacher, it's a little funny teaching a camera. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, I bet. But, but Scott Nygaard's good at giving me subtle direction, and uh, they, they really edit it together in a good way. So Yeah, it's very natural. I mean, it feels very one-on-one. So um, one of the questions I always ask on the podcast that seems to be one of the one of the most popular ones is, and you do a lot of, you've been doing some camps, and so I always ask um, if you had 10 minutes, anything you would recommend? Yeah, I guess that, that would, I mean, really it would be a case-by-case scenario, but but I tend to, you know, if I only have a little time, I'll, I'll pick it up and I'll, I usually use, play along with a metronome and I work on, I work on my little finger because I, I am really, you know, it's, I have not devoted enough time working on that. So it's the weakest. So I, I tend to do these um, closed positions where, I, where I'm using my little finger a fair bit. That's got to be encouraging for people to hear, by the way. Like whenever I do these, that's what they talk, talking to all these great mandolin players like you and, you know, the, all the guys that have been on this podcast and gals, it, the fact that you still are working at it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I try and, you know, get into a, when I'm at home, get into a routine of, of uh, practicing, keeping my chops up. But um, I don't do it as much as I, I probably should. But then again, you know, playing a lot and teaching a lot that keeps the instruments in my hand. And I try and, you know, just stay in shape that way, too. Sure. Do you find anything common um, that you correct on a lot of players that, you know, might help somebody listening to this that you just see like a, you know, when you're doing these camps? Well, you know, it, 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 different levels have different challenges, but, mm-hmm. you know, the more of a beginner or early intermediate, it's the alternating picking, Make, you know, making sure you have the right uh, pick direction for the right part of the beat, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like layers and a tendency, if you play a note on the D string and the next note is on the A string, just to follow through with the same pick direction but it might call for a one and, you know, upstroke. So just trying to get that sorted out. Yeah. That's, that's a real common one. And, you know, not playing too close to the bridge. So it doesn't sound too, uh, too, uh, um, what's the word? How do you describe this tone? Metallic just, maybe? Yeah. Metallic pointy. So it sounds usually up towards the, the fingerboard extension. It's going to sound a little more mellow and, and fuller. And then I also, I also, um, it is mandolins and beer. So always ask, is there a, a particular beer that you enjoy or do you have a favorite beer at all? Yeah, I kind of like, I like strong beers, but not super hoppy. Um, and I, I like a lot of the Belgian beers mm-hmm. and my favorite, um, it's the, you know, Vancouver and British Columbia, there's, you know, big craft beer uh, industry here. And there's one that specializes in Belgian style beers, which I, I really like quite a bit. Like the first Belgian beer I had, I think is kind of a mainstream one. It's Lef or Lefe. You're familiar with that one? I am not. 
Huh. It's spelled L-E-F-F-E, and it's a blonde, and it's I just I'd never tasted a, a beer that was that complex. So I got kind of turned on to that idea, and then read in the paper that there was a local uh, brewery that specializes in Belgian styles, and that's and it's you know ten minutes from my house. Oh, so wow, perfect. <laughs> if I'll stop by there, and it, it's called Daggerad, D-A-G-E-R-A-A-D, and they have you know the the triple and a and a double and a, you know, amber and different. And, but then they make some uh, limited runs. And my, my favorite one they, uh, they made was a, a Belgian style uh, double, but it has, it's called Sri Lankan and the secret ingredient is tamarind. Oh, really? Which I don't really detect the tamarind, but it's just a really, really um, great tasting beer. And, you know, a lot of the, the IPAs that have that kind of citrusy quality to them. Yes. I, I'm not really a fan of those so much. Sure. So I think I, you know, I would think Tamarind is going to have that same thing, but I don't really notice that. It's just huh. a, a good, strong beer. And it's not, you know, it's the flavor. It's not the alcohol content as much as just. Just tastes great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. That's great. I wonder if to see how we got a couple of big. But they only make it once a year. Oh, and last they year really? they didn't make it at all. So I have one bottle left, but hopefully they'll, they'll make them again in February. Oh man. Yeah. No kidding. That's great. Well, John, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Oh, yeah, thank you, I, Daniel. Man, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to pick your brain a little bit. So thank you so much. And, uh, and people can find you online at your website and you have an Instagram as well. Yep. Uh, yeah. John Reichman on Instagram. Perfect. That's just my name. Yeah. yeah. I'll put I mean. all, I'll tag, I'll tag all this. Um, so when people go to the podcast, they'll be able to just click a, click a link and go right to you. That's great. Awesome. Thanks if you, so if you much. search back, you'll see a, a glass of this beer somewhere. In there. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much, John. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Hope to, uh, see you in person sometime. That'd be great. Okay. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.